Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by François Perchet. François is a retired nuclear professional from the French electric utility EDF. He graduated from the École Supérieure d'Electricité in 1976, and upon joining EDF, he took an active part in commissioning new nuclear power plants, followed by positions in operations, maintenance, and safety management. His international duties included being a senior advisor for China Bay, uh, sorry, for Daya Bay in China, um, in the engineering division there. François, thank you very much for actually coming back on the podcast, and I'll explain that in just a second, but welcome welcome again to Decouple. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm very happy to to be able to contribute somewhat, something, uh, even if it's only a little, to the, to the program. Thanks, Chris. Well, you're modest as always. Uh, you know, to my, uh, to my listeners, uh, we actually recorded uh, an amazing show on the Mesmer Plan with Francois about a month ago. I should say not recorded. I interviewed Francois. I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. Um, I was brokenhearted. And luckily, Francois um, is such a generous spirit that he's decided to come back on and give it another go. So um, that's, that's kind of the context uh, for everybody. Um, Francois, you know, today we're going to be talking uh, about the Mesmer plan and, and particularly the, the preconditions. And, you know, I think most of my listeners are very aware, but the Mesmer plan was um, this uh, incredible build out of nuclear energy in France, which essentially decarbonized the French grid and in addition, a lot of heating and, and, and the rail networks. Um, so it's a real um, potential um, vision for for deep decarbonization even though that was not the uh the stated goal of of the uh of the plan itself um you've uh some of my listeners have, have heard a previous episode i did with uh an author named seth klein who you know really uses um the idea of a world war ii level mobilization and wrote a very interesting book about canada's uh wartime mobilization as a uh, potential model for a climate response but um i found it to be an interesting argument but um War, I think, uh, is not a, a great model for, for climate action, given that um, climate action requires uh, unprecedented global cooperation, not, not uh, competition. So with all that being said, um, Francois, again, welcome back. Um, in your introduction there, we learned that uh, you graduated in, in 1976 and went straight into EDF. Um, this was you know, just as the Mesmer plan was kicking off. So what, what was it like uh, as a young, uh, idealistic French uh, nuclear engineer to uh, come into your profession at, at that time and be a part of, of this historic energy transition in France? Yeah, I was not purely technically trained as a nuclear engineer because some people sometimes think you have to be a nuclear engineer to work in a nuclear power plant. In fact, only maybe 2%, 3% of the workforce at the nuclear engineering level is really very specialized in, uh, in the fine electronics like computing a new core, computing uh, core models. And I was just um, a general, I mean, a general training in all that is around electricity, electricity grid, electric machines. And I was lucky enough because maybe of a Mesmer plan in 74, my last year at school to pick up the energy division at the energy special specialized course at the end of my three years at the Ecole Supérieure d'Electricité. And that included uh, the equivalent of two weeks worth course in nuclear, nuclear introduction, nuclear energy 
technology and a few uh, experiments hands on on a small uh, reactor close to where the school was. So we were actually able to to get a small research reactor critical and we, it was quite a, a feast for us as a uh, an undergraduate or graduate to, to be able to do that. In our last conversation, you were saying, um, you know, that this, uh, that you're graduating into an environment of, of really young people that were engaged in this, this big effort. Um, and I think that was something that was kind of exciting for you. Today, most of the people you see talking about nuclear have gray hair. At the time, I mean, my first boss at the first plant I joined was something like 42 years old and he was in charge of building four nuclear for new nuclear units and also to to recruit to hire all the people to make this plant work after it so it was really most of the people there were very young and it was very exciting to join them when i was in uh, high school i was lucky to take part in a, in an exhibit that was held by uh, young students from the university in limoges that's a, a, a city in the center of france and they were bragging about the beauty of nuclear power. They were explaining what, what it was and so on. And I guess because I was 16 or 17 years old, I was very excited. And that gave me the idea maybe to join the wagon there. And I also want to say to the people listening to me that um, what I will going to tell you, what I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to, to say is in every way uh, endorsed by my former company EDF or the French government or any company I've been working with. Just, just to make this clear, don't say it's a nuclear engineer from EDF speaking. No, it's a retired guy who has his own vision. And it's, uh, as you say, in my humble opinion, right? Thanks a lot for acknowledging this. For sure. No, that's, that's what we love uh, in terms of our guests. We, we don't want company men. We want, uh, we want people with, with their own opinions. So, you know the the real objective to the show, I think, is is to explore the the preconditions, right? Because um, you know, in, in my naivete, I, I think to myself, you know, um, this is a, an evidence based um, success story. We we have been able to achieve deep decarbonization in a number of countries, and I think France was probably the most extraordinary. Um, there's some nitpicking about the numbers of reactors that were brought online and the time frame. Um, I've heard that 43 were completed within 15 years. I think a total of 56 were built over something like 20 years. 58. We still we we know have only 56 running because there was a political decision to close the Fessenheim unit. Right. We right. very close to the German border, and the Green people in Germany were very adamant to have it closed when it reached his 40, 45 years old. So in any case, I mean, this this took an extraordinary amount of uh, of organization, of direction, of resources. Um, you know, I, I've learned that this uh, these pre preconditions were very special in France, um, and that it's perhaps not very realistic um, to to imagine that this can occur just any old place at any old time. That we need to actually work towards building the preconditions first in order to enable something as ambitious in terms of the Mesmer plan as a, as a model of climate response. And, you know, maybe countries like, uh, like China or, or South Korea are a little closer to having those preconditions, but let's, let's step back even a little bit further. Um, in a previous show, we explored this phrase, you know, in France, um, we do not have oil, but we have ideas. So frame for me, the underlying, um, rationale, why did France from a, you know, geopolitical or from an energy politics, um, standpoint decide to pursue nuclear it obviously wasn't with decarbonization in in mind because i don't think we even really 
in the popular consciousness had any idea about global warming or its challenges. So, so why, why did France embark on this, this nuclear build-out? If we go back to the end of Second World War, um, the French politicians, I mean, or people in charge of uh, French politics, realized that uh, we had some coal, we had no oil at all, no gas. Gas was something we, we used to make out of coal at the time. And the idea was really down the line, down the road, we will have to be uh, energy independent. So some people thought that maybe nuclear power was a way in the future to be energy independent from uh, the, the people producing coal or oil because we had none of them. Uh, the idea really back then, I mean, back in 45, 1915, 1945, was to, 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 to experiment with um, atomic uh, reactors, as we call them at the time, and maybe in the future, to, to start and produce electricity using this way, and if possible, make it economical. And the goal was further down the road to be able to uh, use fast breeders, fast neutron breeders, in order really with a small amount of uranium ore at the beginning to be able to be self-sufficient for, for um, hundreds of years without even, even having to, to mine new ore. So the, that was really the, the red line that people were following in, in their idea. So it all started with a small country with no resources in terms of oil or coal, and also with um, General de Gaulle at the head, which was a very proud man. And because the Suez Canal um, event in the 56, 57 with the Britain, with the English, had proven that we were very dependent from the oil producing country, and also that we'd, we wanted also to join the, I would say, happy few, but the, the, the states with nuclear, nuclear, with the atomic bomb, in fact, also. So it was a dual, um, dual program, making sure we could get the bomb down the road and also making sure at the same time that acquiring nuclear technology, we would be able to produce electricity at a very fair price and also totally independent from uh, the oil and coal producers. I, I think it's, yeah, it's very interesting understanding this um, and reaching back as far as the Second World War. Um, you know, there's many, many ways to look at the Second World War and why it had the outcomes that it did, um, ranging from, uh, I always like looking more at the issues of, you know, mass production and, and you know, that this was really a, a war of, uh, of the factories in a sense, um, who could produce more material. Um, but underlying that is obviously energy as well. And, you know, the Germans, um, went after, I think the Baku oil fields, um, and they were very stressed by a, a fossil fuel shortage. And it only makes sense that, um, you know, other nations in Europe in the post-war environment were thinking about how, how important energy was in this, uh, new era. But also, you know, France that had, uh, you know, suffered such a humiliating defeat and with the lot of investment in something like the Maginot Line, um, that they might be pursuing an atomic Maginot line, shall we say, to, to sort of secure the future and never have to repeat that, that experience of World War II. So that's, that's very interesting, interesting context. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting also to see that the two countries, French and England, were pursuing exactly the same path. Uh, we had no way to enrich uranium and uranium enrichment was really uh, a U.S. thing, also the Russian, but I don't know more about the USSR at the time. But the U.S. were able to enrich uranium uh, back in uh, the, the, the mid-40s, I guess. We, one of the bombs they, they dropped on, uh, unfortunately, they dropped it 
on Japan, unfortunately, it's really a topic, very difficult topic to speak about, but to talk about. But they, they had enrichment capabilities, uh, gaseous diffusion type of enrichment capacities. And the French, we didn't have this technology. The British people didn't have this technology. So I would say the first 20 years of uh, the nuclear history in France from 45 to 65, and the same in England, was really to try and produce uh, nuclear reactors without enriched uranium, really based on natural uranium. Like in Canada, you had the same history, some sort of history, but you were clever in developing the heavy water type of reactor using natural uranium. Uh, another advantage of this nuclear uh, reactor using natural uranium is that, as some people say, you can produce plutonium al dente. I mean, a very fresh plutonium, which is very useful to make a bomb when you are using the PWR, the, the pressurized water reactor or water reactors of today, you are not able to extract plutonium uh, when it's just at the perfect level of uh, isotopic composition. So really, uh, that's why we developed this, uh, the British, the French, we developed this uh, uh, natural uranium gas-cooled reactor, graphite-moderated, because we were able to load and deal and download them uh, while they were producing power. On, uh, so it was easy to, mm -hmm. to take off plutonium, fresh plutonium uh, of uh, army grade, bomb grade, I would say, plutonium. We'll get into this, you know, the war of the systems and, and understanding a bit more. One of the preconditions, obviously, of the success of the Mesmer plan was was standardization and, and choosing, you know, one design essentially at three different sizes and, and building that out. But just again, to to establish a little bit more of that background, we talked about the the kind of World War II considerations. But uh, tell us a little bit about the the OPEC crisis um, and, and how that uh, was uh, so threatening to France. I understand France was actually burning a lot of oil. A number of countries are burning oil for electricity at that time. Because um, oil was so cheap. Oil was very cheap, yes, very, very cheap. And we had developed uh, already this idea of standardization. We, we built, uh, sorry, I have to look at my, my notes because I forget that. But we built uh, some uh, 38 in, in that time frame, I mean, from uh, 55 to 69. EDF was already very acquainted with the idea of standardization. We built 38 units of 125 megawatt capacity, oil burning plant. We built 37, 250 megawatt, and we built 10, 600 megawatt. So we had really at TDF as a company, I mean, uh, um, a way to standardize plants and to try and build the same by different step, going from 125 and 250 and 600 megawatt oil burning plant. So this was something we, we, we had already developed as the way to, to build, to build power in France. Because at the time, we had a 7% growth of electricity power every year. Electricity consumption was going 7% more every year. So we had really to provide new plant, uh, hydro dams first, and then oil burning plant to do it. We also, at the same time, uh, developed this gas cooled reactor. So we had the industry to do this gas cool reactor. We had also research people able to understand and to master the neutronics part of the gas cool reactors. We had also uh, scientists and engineers very well aware of radiation and all the uh, metallurgy and the metallurgistic problems with hot steam, 
the mid-60s, EDF realized that the gas-cooled reactor were no way to go forward. They were very expensive. We tried, we had, had many problems with some part of it, making them work. We, at EDF, realized that it was not economical to do so. And we had an interesting visit in the U.S. people in 57 or 59, whatever, around this time, visiting the shipping port, first PWR in the U.S. And the people at EDF and also in Belgium were very impressed by Admiral Recover uh, achievement in having this uh, PWR um, working fine. And uh, they, they were bragging the American, but they were right to do so. But they could produce a megawatt hour for less than $100 at the time, which really at the time looked very cheap to, to us in France compared to what we were doing. I don't have any numbers, but it looked cheap and um, far better than what we were able to do with the uh, gas cool reactor. The problem we had was that the intelligentsia, which is the nuclear intelligentsia in France, was really pushing for the French uh, design, the gas cool reactor, when EDF was also realizing at the same time that it was a no way, a no go, a no economical way to produce electricity because they were huge uh, mm -hmm. things with a lot of graphite, with um, um, limited output power around 600 megawatts was the maximum we managed to reach. Mm. At that point, I mean, mid-60s, we also, with the Belgian people, we managed to build a PWR in France, a small PWR, SOA, uh, close to the Belgian border. And this small plant uh, was able to show that we were able, with Ramatome, French company, to build a Westinghouse PWR. Mm -hmm. We also engaged in a bigger one, a 900 megawatt in Tiange, so that was in the 67, when it was made. We built a 900 megawatt, the first free loop, 900 megawatt Westinghouse style in Europe, built by the French and the Belgian people uh, in Belgium. And that okay. was, uh, so we were able to, to master the PWR technology. A, a couple other questions I have around, around these, these preconditions, right? Um, you know, this this was a time around the world, I think, in the developing world where we were seeing um, uh, grid capacity growing by, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent per year. Um, I try not to kind of let my biases show too strongly, but my sense from looking at this question, we've done some shows with uh, Edgardo Sepulveda, a regulatory economist looking at this. But, um, you know, these these large buildouts have usually occurred in the context of a, of a pretty significant state stewardship, either ownership, organization, regulation of electricity markets. Um, and I understand, I think pre-war France had a number of, of different, you know, private utilities. And, and was it under de Gaulle that things were, were centralized into the EDF? Yes, you're right to, to point it. Yeah, we had, I don't know, hundreds of uh, small uh, electrical companies, a few big ones, which were slowly integrating smaller one. But after the, the war, it was decided uh, as a priority to to integrate all these little companies into one big one, a big utility, state-owned utility, EDF, except for a few companies which was, were already nationalized or in the hands of uh, uh, cities like uh, in Bordeaux or in Strasbourg, where they still have mm -hmm. uh, existing company to, to distribute electricity. So in 1946, De Gaulle created EDF, a uh, state-owned company, with the aim to 
electrify France, I would say, first with hydro, hydro power was a major achievement in the 50s from, uh, for EDF. And at the same time, um, we, we had in 45, uh, De Gaulle created the CEA, the Atomic Energy, Com Com Atomic Energy Commission in France, which was in charge of developing uh, nuclear energy, nuclear power for the bomb, as I said before, but also with the idea to, to, to produce electricity. We even had this idea of developing uh, heavy water reactors at the time. Uh, Frédéric Joliot-Curie was one of the guys who was behind this heavy water reactor. The small story goes that because he was also a communist, uh, having a communist in charge of uh, nuclear power and also the atomic bomb maybe uh, was not very well seen by um, the, the government. So uh, unfortunately for him, he was not, 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 not anymore in charge of the program. That's right. why maybe he, he didn't go the way the Canadian went with the, uh, with the heavy water. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we, 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 we were building from 45 to 65, we are building we had this national company and we were also building all these uh, oil burning plants, but also these uh, gas and having expertise being developed among engineers and scientists. And so again, a big part of the show is, is, is trying to understand how different the world is now compared to, uh, to those, those heady days and, and how different the, the preconditions are. And perhaps what are some of the political changes that would that would be required to sort of steward us to the place of of being capable of of doing something as ambitious as the Mesmer plan? I know this sounds like maybe a idealistic fool's errand, but entertain me on that, dear listener. So, I mean, so far, um, I think a couple of uh, one of the major features we've, we've identified is this idea of um, you know derate. We, we exist now in a time of, of deregulated markets that are very very different from what you're describing with uh, the centralization and with the EDF. Um, we're existing in a time of, of privatization, which I think is a big part of that deregulation effort. Um, and there's there's less of an ability for um, either government or private capital to come in and, and fund these these big ambitious projects. Um, France was still um, a, a very industrialized country at that time. I know deindustrialization is is something that's um, you know been affecting the entire West as as we've offshored a lot of our uh, our industrial processes. Um, France had the capacity to uh, forge. Heavy vessels. I was reading one of the one of the uh, the factories um, uh, was pumping out something like eight pressure vessels and twenty four steam turbines a year at the Chalon factory. I mean, this just seems extraordinary in terms of uh, uh, the output. And it it was built in something like two years time. I mean, this new facility in Chalon was built in two years time in order to be able to 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 produce uh, that amount of. Uh, uh, number of reactors and steam generators and pressurizers. Just, just because I, I'm not sure people understand what, what means Mesmer plan. Uh, Mesmer was the prime minister. Pompidou was the, um, was the, the president of the republic, president of the republic in France. And, um, we, we, we were in 69. I forgot to mention that, but in 69, EDF managed to convince De Gaulle when he was retiring from political power. Uh, to, and Pompidou was his first minister, prime minister at the time. He managed, EDF managed to convince them that if we wanted really to be independent, following uh, energy independent, we had really to, to go to the US, uh, technology. De Gaulle was very against buying, acquiring something to the America, to, to the US. 
but we had to convince him that the only way to produce cheap enough electric power from nuclear energy was really to go to the US standards. At the time, we wanted to build PWR, pressurized water reactor, on boiling water reactors. The fact was that Framatome had got a lot of hands-on experience with the Tianj power plant in Belgium. When the GE equivalent in France, CGE, which was a part of uh, the GE group, had no experience of building any boiling water reactor in France or in Europe. We tried to have uh, the equivalent of Tianj, a uh, big, big boiling water reactor in Switzerland, in Kaiserhorst. It was close to, ba to Basel, Basel in, uh, in uh, German, a big city in Switzerland. And the opposition to this bill was very, very strong. So it never happened. So the only uh, design we had really ready to, to, to develop was a PWR, a pressurized water reactor from Westinghouse. And in 1970, we decided already to build maybe two units a year of that technology. So Framatome was able to, to say we can offer a good price because we knew, we knew, we know that we are going to build a lot of them. So they, they already had a plan before the Mesmer plan to build two new reactor units on the grid every year. Then in 1973, we had October 1973. We had the Kippur War, uh, where, you know, the Egyptian and the Israeli fought a, a war and the creation of the OPEC. And the, uh, and so the price of oil was really, uh, going very high and some oil shortage happened in all the West, West, Western countries. To, to give you a number, the price of oil was multiplied by four at the pump, at the gas station. Uh, petrol was to be sold. To be sold four times more than it was before. And the, it was a huge amount of money that we had to spend. So there was this kind of um, get together between industry, EDF, and also Framatome. And they asked EDF, how many plants are you able to put online? And the, 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 the Framatome and EDF said, we are able to put up to six or eight new units a year online. And then during this major meeting, uh, it took place in fact March 6, 1974. It was called the Mesmer plant. Pompidou and Mesmer decided in a small group meeting that we will build six units a year, up to eight units a year for the years to come. That's when the big orders for eight, six, eight on the uh, 30, 900 megawatt, then the 20, 1300 megawatt, uh, plant was decided. So the Mesmer Pompidou plant was something decided, okay, in March 74, but it has been built slowly in the years before, as you were saying. Um, especially already we were building or ordering one or two units a year. And it was a decision just to go from one or two units a year to six to eight. And also to build, as you say, the Chalon factory and to build all of this. And, uh, but everything was ready to, to take the, for the decision to be taken, in fact. That was a great summary. And, and maybe we should have started off with that summary, but that's, I think that's going to be much appreciated by the listeners. I'm kind of fascinated by the political decision making here. It seems to me that France at this time, maybe it still is, uh, there's a certain amount of a, of a kind of technocratic nature of the state that these kind of high level energy strategic decisions are not something that's, 
necessarily decided on in elections every four years, um, but something that's, you know, there is perhaps a kind of technocratic deep state, not to get conspiratorial, but just that that's how the French state worked at that time. In terms of that decision making, can you can you sort of demystify that for us a little bit? Is it as, is it as simple as that? It was just, you know, you get um, the engineers in the room and, and they make the decisions. Um, was there a lot of political consultation? How did the uh, French public feel about it? How did the unions, for instance, feel about uh, these efforts? Were there controversies at the time or did this just kind of um, move along without much debate? At, at EDF, the, the strongest union was and it still is the, what we call the CGT, Confédération Générale du Travail. And they were very supported by very close to the Communist Party and so the Soviet people. And for them, um, nuclear energy was a way to hire a lot of people because nuclear energy is more like brain power and also a lot of workers at a plant. I mean, the 900 megawatt plant is something like 600 workforce. So the, these unions saw the, the, the Mesmer plant as an opportunity to have more uh, sympathetic people to them, yeah? more workers, more engineers, uh, unless maybe a uh, big, big uh, money coming. Um, I don't know how to say it, but they were supportive of it. Some unions were not as supportive. Um, the public, general public in general, was very supportive because we had decided that to become a, a superpower or to be or to stay a kind of superpower or at least to be a big power, we needed to be an industrialized country, a technically advanced country. At the time, I mean, we are speaking 50 years ago, uh, being uh, a technical country with a lot of technical achievement was seen as a way to really exist in the world and to be a, a major country. Also, to be able to export nuclear technology to other countries was something that uh, was very important to the government also. Uh, back to the gas cool reactor, we only managed to export one uh, in, uh, to, to Spain. The British people, they exported one to um, Japan. So basically, it was not uh, something that we were able to, we would be able, have been able to export a lot because it was not really worth it in terms of economy. So the general public also was very supportive of all the technical achievement. I mean, we had the Concorde, the plane, the supersonic plane built with the English people. We had the fast, rapid train. Remember the 64 Olympic Games in Tokyo, they had the first bullet train, uh, commercial bullet train and so on. So we, we were taking after them and uh, also trying to have our high-speed train, the TGV, uh, all over France. Uh, Concord, TGV, people who are going on the moon, the American people, 69, 70. So people didn't question much that the science and technology would produce the way forward for humanity, you know. Uh, when today people say, oh no, it's a bad thing, scientists and technology, we need to go back to our uh, green way of living, uh, no technology, no pesticide, no, no GMO food. No. At the time it was sort of the opposite, where people believed in science and in technique to, to save the world, I would say. So it's a different standpoint 50 years ago. It's not to say that there was no opposition among the people. Uh, since the last time we talked, I, I look back at some uh, bad, very bad, sad events that happened. I mean, uh, we were speaking of Fessenheim, the first 900 megawatts, standardized 900 megawatts in France. We had some people launching rockets uh, to the plant and destroying some equipment. Uh, Marcel Boiteux, the head of EDF at the time, had his flat bombed 
he almost was killed and his family because there are some uh, uh, terrorists, in fact, were bombing his flat because nuclear power was seen as a, um, um, how could I say, kind of not flagship, but something to, to, to fight for and uh, very, um, symbolic, symbolically speaking, it was something, uh, to, to, to fight. And, uh, for this party, they were very close to, uh, the, the Red Brigade in Italy or, uh, all this movement in the mid seventies, but really was terrorism, but not, uh, an Islamic terrorism, but, uh, a very leftist Maoist terrorism. I think I think that's fascinating because uh, yeah I th the only I think the only examples historically of terrorist attacks on nuclear plants have been from far left or green groups I, I think the the rocket attack in Fessenheim was someone who was uh, affiliated in some way with Greenpeace but I, I don't want to go too much on the record that no it was not Greenpeace at the time it was really people who were against the capitalism I, I know that in a way Greenpeace is against capitalism in the way mondialization and so on but there it was really against uh, uh, capitalism against uh, state power uh, against the establishment and when we had also the super phoenix being built i think it was in 1977 uh, the, the first fast breeder uh, we had uh, something with a lot of people coming from germany from switzerland from france and they were going to do um, a pacifist offensive walk on the site. So I don't know what pacifist, but offensive walk on the site meant. But the, big, the bad thing is that it ended up with some of the um, manifestant, uh, not some of the, um, the guys unfortunately yeah. died. I mean, we, we had a death there. I mean, uh, a guy was killed by uh, a tear gas grenade. Uh, so. That was kind of shock in France that uh, the contestation has been so strong. So you mentioned the figure Marcel Boiteau, uh, the head of EDF, um, and I, I, I can't let that slide because uh, a good friend of mine, I think his hero is Marcel Boiteau. Um, if we could just take a minute or two. Boiteau, okay. Just to, uh, okay. <laughs> I'll leave you to say the last name because I'm going to continue to butcher it. But um, if you could just take a minute or two to describe this man, I understand he was a, a leading resistance fighter, a partisan, and and went on to to really lead the EDF. If it, basically just just to entertain this good friend of mine, if, I don't know if you have a you can give us an anecdote or or uh, just spend a couple minutes talking about uh, this figure. I've had him as a big manager when I entered EDF, so I've never met him personally. I know from what I know, I know he was a brilliant economist. Uh, a technician, but also a brilliant economist. And he, I, I'm not an economist myself, so I cannot explain uh, what he did in terms of economy in planning economy, you know, planning the, the um, ec economy for a big utility like EDF. How do you spend your money when you put a dollar somewhere? Where is it better to put it in the grid, in renovating the grid there, in building new plant, in, uh, and what will be the price? electricity that we will deliver and how to calculate all this. He was also brilliant in terms of finding money because I, we didn't say that before. We didn't, I didn't explain that. But EDF didn't build the nuclear power plant borrowing money from the state or from the French pocket. I mean, we had a, we issued commercial paper on the US market and that was something new. I mean, we were the first French company to buy commercial papers 
on the US market in order to finance our nuclear power plant. It's not a, a real loan per se, it's another way to, to raise money and to be able with, we had the backup from the French government, but we, we, we didn't um, um, uh, borrow money directly as the money we would do, we, we do now for with banks and the um, institute bank, federal institution and so on. Uh, Master Boutesso was primarily uh, a visionary, of, an excellent uh, economist, and also uh, a good leader in order to put EDF in a work, working, working order in order to complete um, all this marvelous program, the Mesmer program that was decided. It was behind the people who decided to do it. Who pushed the government to accept it? It's it's just uh, it's it's interesting to to have heard that element of his his house being bombed by uh, you know I guess the equivalent of the Red Army. I mean, he almost died. He was lucky because him and his family were sort of like in a room like I am now, and not close to the entrance door because they bombed the the cases at the flat and so on were really ruined. Wind. Nobody was really hurt badly, but it was really something that uh, uh, was was shocking. I mean, uh, at the time, you know. And and this, he was a hero of the French Resistance, from what I understand as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I cannot. I cannot. Okay. I, I cannot right. say sorry. I didn't. No, that. no problem. We'll, we'll leave. We'll leave. We'll leave. Uh, we'll leave Marcel right there then. Um, so you know, that's interesting. You were saying that the, the you're saying that the uh, the financing. Um, was uh through this this mechanism of of uh bonds or something i'm not sure i totally understand that but um i'm, I'm kind of interested in that I, th I think another sort of big precondition or change is that um nuclear financing is is you know completely different now where interest rates being charged are something like nine percent because i think nuclear seen as a fairly high risk investment it's gonna go over price or over budget um, investors want um, a significant uh, return in terms of uh, in terms of uh, high interest rates. What, do you know anything about what the what the interest rates were like or the financing mechanisms were like? Um, did did this build out bankrupt France? Um, was it affordable? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I remember because we it was a very different time. I mean, we had an inf inflation set in English yeah, of eight to nine percent, eleven percent. So interest rate was. Uh, accordingly were very high and also because we bought this commercial paper in the us we had a problem with the exchange rate between french and dollars you know um, don't forget that in 1981 president Mitterrand was elected and he was elected together with the communist uh, mini, uh, ministers and so the financial community was quite afraid of what was going to happen in france i mean the soviet union was very strong at the time or seen as very strong. So we had communists entering the French government. And uh, I remember some of my American friends at the time was, were, were telling me, please escape, escape before it's too late. So uh, the, the French francs was devaluated a lot. Uh, that means that the, the dollar was skyrocketing at $10, $10 to a franc that would be 1.5 euro uh, for a dollar now. So, and then it went down and up. So. For the financial people, finance people at EDF and economist people, it was kind of a tough game to manage and convert some commercial papers into loan, into um, into 
euro-dollars, so, I mean, European dollars or, you know, US dollars and, and really to make sure. I, I'm not an economist. I'm not a fin financial guy at all. So I know uh, I should thank some of the people working at the finance institution at EDF, but they managed to, 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 to repay what we, we were due to pay. And I'm not sure. I don't think we have paid uh, already all of it. We, we still have some loans going on for this. Uh, 56 plants that are operating. So I'm just trying to imagine, I mean, nuclear plants by, by definition, they're, um, you know, so power dense, um, they tend to sort of hide in the landscape while being large, large pieces of infrastructure. Um, you don't need to build very many of them. Um, and, uh, I'm just, I'm just wondering like what, what it looked like building so many reactors every year, um, how it transformed France, how it transformed, you know, the surrounding communities. Um, was this something that was, you know, very noticeable to French people at the time? I mean, I can imagine it was employing a lot of people. This building boom—it's—it's it's unimaginable. I mean, uh, you know, fifty-six reactors in, in twenty years or something like that. How did that transform the French experience or French society? I think it only had an impact locally. Yeah, I mean, I would say maybe I'm wrong, but I would say twenty kilometers radius around the plant. You feel like there is a plant because you have people working at the plant. You have people uh, working in companies that work for the plant. Um, but it's, it's not seen much impact. We, you don't see much impact uh, further than 20, 25 kilometers around the plant. Um, you don't see the fumes anymore. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the cooling towers, uh, we, um, and it benefits mainly to the people in the surrounding communities. Uh, okay. When you go into a nuclear power plant or close to a nuclear power plant, you can see that the, the church, uh, in the village, in the villages around have been, uh, refurbished. You can see, uh, new pavement on the road, new sidewalks. You can see, uh, water fountain in the village on the, on the main square in the villages. But, uh, because they, they got some, uh, perks, some money from the plant. You can see, uh, uh, swimming pool sometime, uh, because you have this, uh, for, for example, Graveline is six units and you have 1500 employees working at Graveline. Um, and, uh, and almost, uh, another 600, 700 as contractors or subcontractors. So most of these people live around the plant. Uh, but apart from around the plant, people don't really, uh, see or feel like there is a plant that exists. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's, uh, it's not a big, big, big thing. I mean, uh, uh, and they are very happy to have a plan because it gives a lot of money to the, to the local people. And uh, so whenever or wherever we manage to build plants, people are quite happy with it and very unhappy about contestation, about contest, not contest, but about uh, protest against this plan. Uh, that's why in a future plant, we, we plan to reuse existing site. Like uh, if we close some uh, older units, we will try and reuse the site, the existing site, because the workforce is there. People are quite supportive. The electric line, the high voltage, 400 kilovolt uh, electric line already exists. The transformer is there. Uh, all, all the infrastructure is there. And you have also often um, schools, technical schools, vocational schools, uh, you know, training people as uh, technicians, as mechanics, as electrician as automatician, uh, INC people. 
and their father work uh, at the plant and they want to work at the plant as well. So it's kind of family, family community around this plant. It's um, different in other parts of France where the contestation, the protests were very strong against new plants in the 70s. Like in Brittany, for example, we were unable to build any plant in the far west, I would say, in France, in the western part of France, in Brittany. And there is some problem with the grid there. We, we have still some uh, uh, coal burning plant, uh, a coal burning plant and diesel to power that part of uh, France because electricity they do not travel that well. We, we, you have high voltage line, but it does not travel very well in terms of grid stability. And when you have a peninsula like uh, Brittany, uh, we need some uh, rotating machines in that part of France to, to, to ensure that the grid stability is, uh, is there. So they're burning coal. They're burning coal to do that. Yeah. Some, yeah. 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 When, when, and diesel. Yeah. There are a few diesel or now the diesel have been replaced most of them by gas turbine. Interesting. Yeah. So we have some, uh, something there. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit more in, in the time we have left about, uh, French attitudes towards nuclear. I understand. I think basically up until September 11th, um, some 20 years ago now, um, French high school students would, would tour nuclear plants. There wasn't this division between this kind of hidden technology and society people were aware of it um, a friend of mine was sharing a, a recent uh, uh, promotional video from uh, the the TGV the high-speed train network kind of celebrating an anniversary of it and showing all these wonderful bits of France but there was no no uh, demonstration of what actually powered the TGV there was some you know solar panels and wind turbines blowing but I mean this is an electric train network I believe 55% of French rails electrified. And so almost all of that is essentially nuclear powered rail. Um, and he was saying this really reflects the kind of underlying anti-nuclearism that's sort of taken over France. Um, was that a big marking point in terms of changes of, of attitudes? I've heard that, you know, most people under the age of 40 believe that nuclear power plants, those, you know, that steam coming out of the, uh, out of the cooling towers is, is smoke or CO2 being emitted. Most people are unaware this is a zero or ultra low carbon power source. How do you see French attitudes nowadays, you know, 50 years after the launch of the Mesmer plan? I guess there was some, uh, a lot of misunderstanding or wrong understanding is still taking place. Uh, I know of some um, teachers at the primary school or um, mid-level mid school who are teaching the pupils that nuclear energy is a fossil energy because you dig uh, uranium from the, from the, from the, the soil. So mm -hmm. digging uranium from the soil means it's a fossil energy. So this misunderstanding is unfortunately very uh, common in France. And I don't have the figures, I didn't do any research on it, but uh, uh, I guess something like 40% of people in France still think that uh, nuclear energy is not good for the climate, but it's changing. It is changing uh, quite hopefully in the, in the right way. But our main concern, my main concern is the failure of the West, I mean, the American and French people and uh, Finnish people with building new gen free reactors. I mean, uh, all Kilito has been, uh, is being built for maybe 12 or 13 years. The same with Flamanville Free, Flamanville Free, the new P EPR reactor. Uh, when you look in the US, the Vogel uh, nuclear plants are being built, but it's not going like it's going to be built in five years, uh, in time, on time, almost on budget, but not at all. This is summers, the IP1000 have been uh, 
cancel. I mean, it's uh, half built maybe or third built and they cancel the, the whole uh, project. So my concern is, uh, really to, to have the trust back of the people. We need to prove that we are able to build these new plants, uh, in times on budget and that, it, that they are able to deliver, uh, the, the electricity at the right price. The other thing is, unfortunately, when these plants were de designed, we said they are designed to last 30 or 40 years. That means we made all the calculations to make sure that the investment was worth it, that uh, we would have 40 years of operation so that we were not investing a lot of money for only 15 or 20 years. But the misconception is that they have been designed for 40 years. So after 40 years, they are too old to be operated. So we had to convince people that, for example, in the US, some plants have already had their 80 years licensing um, uh, license. I mean, they are able to operate, technic not technically, but at least administratively uh, on in safe terms in uh, regarding regulation. They are able to operate for 80 years. So if we think 80 years for our, new, new, for our old nuclear plants, they are just almost midlife for some of them or not even midlife for most of them. So we, we don't really need to build new nuclear power plants if we are, if we manage to extend the life of the existing nuclear power plants. On the other hand, other hand, I think it would be good to have a program, not as big as a Mesmer program, but at least if we could have one or two plants being decided every year to be built and put online to replace the older plant and also to, to face the increase in electricity demand that we will have, and also to ensure that we don't need gas plants to take place when wind or solar is are not producing enough. Mm -hmm. That would be good. So I, I know I may be confusing many things, but, but the, just to say that the people in France at this time, not all of them are convinced that um, nuclear is uh, efficient um, to prevent to mitigate on the power plants are not that old, but also it's important for the industry and EDF to prove that we are able to build new nuclear power plants. Uh, we, we cannot do like we did with Flamanville 3, uh, where it might go on grid in 19, in 20, 2022 or 2023 or 2024, when we started it in 2007. That's really, it's like the Sydney Opera, yeah, right? It's something you never see the end. And it's, uh, it's not good. It's not good. It's going not good. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a very interesting question. Um, you know, the West, as you said, it's it seems like it's been a, a disaster in terms of building new nuclear uh, in the 21st century. Um, I think we can look at successful uh, builds happening, obviously, um, in China. South Korea had a lot of success um, up until their more recent anti-nuclear government may have sort of scuttled things temporarily. But um, things like the, the Barakat... Uh, complex in the UAE are, I think, quite hopeful. But um, I think it's going to be a tough pill to swallow for the West, um, which has a lot of hubris and pride to have to say, you know what, we're actually not good at building anymore. We might need to bring in a big South Korean team to help us, you know, get our, get our, get on track. And we may need, we may need to go with a, a an older design like the uh, System 80 or something from, from South Korea that they know how to build well. I mean, that's that's what's tricky, I think, is that the nuclear industry has... Um, decided that we we need uh, you know even more complex and advanced reactors um, you know and and at a time when we're we're worse and worse at at building them. But anyway, that's maybe a conversation better left for 
for another day. Um, do you have any uh, any kind of closing closing thoughts? Uh, we've been going for about fifty minutes now on this topic. Any, anything we didn't um, get a chance to uh, to discuss again, with that theme in mind being being the preconditions and this maybe naive and optimistic idea that perhaps it could be recreated at some point somewhere in, on on the Earth. And that we we explained that the Mesmer Pompidou Mesmer thing, building eight reactors or six reactors a year, was carefully built or possible because we had this 20 years before of experiment of uh, careful building of nuclear power plant, success with Tian, success with a plant of the same design. So it was not building first of a kind new plants. Uh, also taking on this kind of experience, the IEA in Vienna decided that to, to build a new nuclear program, you need something like 15 years before you, you can actually build the plant and be able to operate it. And then you have this, uh, Emirates people, Emirates people going on the market saying we want nuclear power because we know that oil will not suffice for a lot, too, too much time. We need to desalinate our water and why not build a nuclear power plant? It's, it makes good on the political uh, um, way. And, and they went to the Korean and with the help of the, some US NRC people, help of the Korean industry, Korean workers, Indian workers. I don't know exactly how they, they did it. But they managed to decide to build new nuclear power plant in 2009 from scratch with no existing industry, no existing university, no existing uh, preconditioned nuclear people, nuclear regulation, nuclear law in their country. And in 2021, they have two plants already operating. So uh, maybe it's another time now, another uh, that it was in France in 1974. I mean, what we did in France uh, when we decided in 74 to, to build this, all these plants, uh, the situation now is maybe different and we shouldn't think and look at what the Emirates did. Uh, again, 2009, they, they, they issue a contract to the Korean and they build everything. And 10 years later, they have plants operated, operating. Mm -hmm. So it may be, there may be different ways of doing, uh, of achieving the same kind of results. Right. I, I don't know, but that would be a word of caution, but uh, it may be, in a way, easier and in another way, not so easy to do, it, to do the same now right. in uh, right. the 21st century. Okay. Well, Francois, thank you uh, so much for, for making the time twice uh, to do this show. As I said, our first episode, uh, uh, I forgot to hit the record button. This time I very much have. Um, really grateful that you could uh, make time again to come on the show. Okay. Thank you. Thanks to, to all for listening my broken English. <laughs> All the best. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys. <laughs>